You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. He'll turn me off at a certain point, so um, yeah, just it is a, it is a blessing to to be here with you all uh, to open God's word together and to to learn and grow together. Um, so bef- before we get into the actual passage, normally we start by reading the passage and then sort of working through it. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to uh, we're going to go through it sort of step by step. And before we do that, I wanted to provide a little background on the book of a whole book as a whole. Ruth is, by all accounts, an amazing story, um, and really it's for two major reasons. One, because of the story it tells. There's, there's a, a really interesting story. It's a really engaging story. Even if you, you could care less about Christianity, it's a cool story. Um, we, we have a lot of different moving parts, and, and the author is uh, really, uh, I think, quite skilled in how he pulls it together. The second part is it's really cool when you step back and you look at Ruth and you see how God's larger, bigger picture plan for, for rescuing humanity, for, for intervening in our lives and drawing us back to him, you can, you can see that told in the microcosm of Ruth, how God intervenes and, and works through that. So it, pay attention to some of that as we go through today. Ruth also has the distinction of being only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. Kids, does anyone know what the other bi- Bible book name is? Joel, you're looking right at me. What's the other one named after a woman? Oh, Lucy's raising her hand, man. Oh, we got one back there, Ellie? Esther. Esther, yeah. Is that what you were going to say, Lucy? Right on, yeah. So only two books in the Bible named after a woman, and, and Ruth is really told from the perspective of a woman. So let's, let's enjoy that this morning as we go through it and over the coming months as we, as we work through Ruth. Um, Ruth is also the only book in the Old Testament named after a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. Um, depending on your understanding of the, of the book of Acts and, and of Luke, um, some say he was a Gentile, some say he wasn't. So it might be the only one, it might be just, but in the Old Testament, it is the only book uh, named after a Gentile. Um, I, I, said, I said Ruth is an amazing story. Like any, like any piece of art or, or really wonderful piece of music, any masterpiece, it takes effort to understand what is, what's going on, what's being conveyed. You can't just glance at something, the Mona Lisa or, or Rachmaninoff, you can't, just, you can't just listen for 30 seconds and get it. It takes time to, and it takes work to really understand that, to appreciate it, and, and to understand what it's trying to convey. And, and I think Ruth is like that. Um, because we're reading Ruth in English and not in the original language of Hebrew, it's a little harder for us. Of course, that, that's true for all the books of the Bible, but particularly in the case of a story like Ruth, I think it's, it's extra hard to really follow along. So I'd encourage us to go slow, to take our time to really immerse ourselves in the story and, and uh, be patient with it, right? Sometimes I think we, we, get in, can we, uh, we get impatient with ourselves and we just try to rush to the end, so, so let's not do that today. I think it's also helpful to recognize that just like any book of the Bible, there are different types, there are different categories. Um, you know, the prophets, you have the, the epistles, and, and as, you, as you read through them, understanding what kind it is helps inform how we, how we read it. So again, Ruth is a story, and we're going to try and preach it through like that. Chapter one can be overwhelming. I'll just, you know, disclosure there. Um, but I think it's really important that we take time to meditate on the struggles of these very two real women, um, and I think that'll help better position us to understand the majesty of God presented throughout this book. 
So with that long prologue, let's jump into chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we're gonna take a brief pause. Ruth is a story, like I've said a few times now, and stories have settings and characters. And we'll be fully introduced to the first set of characters in a minute, but verse one gives us the setting. In the days when the judges ruled. This is a loaded introduction and a clear reference to the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth in your Bibles. We could spend all morning trying to unpack uh, what it means to live in this period, and in your free time, I would encourage you to start working through the book of Judges. Um, you know, Lars and I will be preaching through Ruth over the next coming months, and I think it would be helpful for you to have that background and context as we work through Ruth together. That's the period in which she was living. The original audience would have immediately recognized this as the chaotic time in Israel's history after Moses and Joshua and before the monarchies of King Saul and King David. Hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt and decades wandering in the wilderness um, finally have given way and they've arrived in the promised land. They're there at last, um, but as you probably know or as some of you might know, things were anything but perfect. Up until the time of the judges, God had appointed a leader for the people of Israel, starting with Abraham and down through the patriarchs to Moses and finally Joshua. At the end of the book of Joshua, before he dies, Joshua gives one final command to Israel that we have recorded in Joshua chapter 23. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed all of the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all of the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down before them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Twice, Joshua says, not one word of God's promises concerning the people of Israel have failed, and warns Israel to continue to be faithful to God, lest they be punished. Unfortunately, after the death of Joshua, Israel dove headfirst into a time of apostasy and unfaithfulness. The period of the judges is perhaps one of the darkest periods for, the peop for God's people in the Old Testament, where the stubborn disobedience of Israel is contrasted regularly with God's faithfulness and justice. Judges 2, 16 through 19 summarizes this period in Israel's history well. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside and not, and, and from the way that their fathers had walked, and who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord is with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge." For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This cycle of salvation, idolatry, punishment, cry for help, salvation, continues time and time again throughout the book of Judges, and with each cycle, things get worse and worse. The book of Judges closes with Judges 21-25 saying, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the midst of this turmoil and uncertainty, we are introduced to our first set of characters in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, 
and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Melhan and Chilion. They were Paphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So with the historical backdrop in view in our initial characters, we learn where the story takes place. Bethlehem and Moab. Verse 1 tells us that there's also a famine. We don't know much about the famine, but given the context, it's likely a result of Israel's unfaithfulness. As a result, Elimelech decides to take his family from God's promised land to the land of Moab in search of bread that he might provide for his family. Hearing the story, we're faced with the first question. Was Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem, was that God-honoring or was that self-serving? Before we answer too quickly, consider how many of the great patriarchs did something very similar. Genesis 12 tells us how Abraham went to live in Egypt due to a famine. By the time he left, Genesis 13 tells us that he had become quite wealthy. Genesis 26 tells us how Isaac went to live in the land of the Philistines at the direction of God, who promises to be with him and to bless him. The king of the Philistines eventually asks Isaac to leave because he's become so wealthy that he's considered a threat to the kingdom. That's pretty remarkable. Um, so, so there's some biblical precedent for sojourning in a foreign land and God responding with rich blessings. Perhaps Elimelech, familiar with these, thought the same would happen to him. He thought, well, I'll go a time of famine, I'll, I'll live somewhere else, and I'll come back rich and wealthy. Maybe he thought that's what he was supposed to do. It's hard to say for sure, but in the absence of any comment or note from the author indicating that he was in the right, the difference in circumstances and certainly the outcomes and the language of return used throughout chapter 1 make it more likely that Elimelech's departure was seen, in him, seen as him turning his back on God and on the promised land and trusting in his own strength and wisdom to provide for his family. I think here it's helpful to stop and take a look at the names a bit more closely. First, Bethlehem translates to house of bread. Bread would have been synonymous with food itself, so Bethlehem was known for being a place of provision, food, security, and thus life. But all that now is taken away by the famine. Rather than seek the face of God, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, in a period of time where there was no king in Israel, he turns his back. He doesn't live up to his name, and he walks away from God's covenant. Moab's also a pretty interesting choice. The original audience would have known of Moab, and it wasn't good. Uh, in Genesis 19, 30 through 38, we see how Moab came to exist through the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. I'll leave it there for Family Sunday, um, but it's, it's a rough story. Uh, Numbers chapters 23 through 24 tells the story of how the king of Moab tried to get Balaam, a prophet, to curse Moses and the Israelites. Numbers 25, 1 through 5, again, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, but it, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of times Moab comes up in the Old Testament, and it's, it's never positive. The, the associations and what people would have thought of when they were there would, would not have been a good thing. Israelites at the time would have associated Moab with sexual immorality and idolatry, a land living in opposition to God and his people. And this, this is where Elimelech and Naomi take their family in a time of famine. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, pay attention to this pursuit of bread as well. This is something that the author, I think, weaves in quite well. They are pursuing life. They're pursuing bread and sustenance. And as we see throughout the book, it, it, it's a major driving factor. So we're only at verse 3. So again, I, I promise we'll, we'll get there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Melhan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. 
The style of writing here is pretty interesting. At the beginning of the story, in just three short verses, the author recounts the death of Naomi's closest family with almost no detail. It's cold, distant, and without any explanation. Try to put yourself in Naomi's shoes. You've left your home, your extended family, your friends, your land, everything you've ever known, and now your husband is gone. The author doesn't even use Naomi's name. He says the woman was left with her two sons. It's as if she's begun to even lose her identity. After the death of your husband, perhaps thoughts of returning to Bethlehem come to mind, but before you can make any plans to return, your sons marry Moabite women. The author doesn't give any indication as to Naomi's initial relationship with them, what she thought when that, ha when that happened, but Naomi would have been familiar with how God punished Israelites for taking Moabite wives. If nothing else, she was probably thinking about what her friends and family were thinking back home, if they would only know that her sons had married not just foreign women, but Moabite women. The sadness of her husband's death is now mixed with guilt and shame over who her sons have married. Ten years later, with no grandchildren to brighten her spirit, her sons also die. As if barrenness, one of the greatest curses of their day, wasn't devastating enough, she must now bury her two sons without her husband. The past decade has been defined by sadness and despair, and it gets worse and worse. Naomi has lost everything, including any hope of a future. As we read Ruth, especially if you're familiar with the story, we're tempted to skip past and gloss over these first five verses. They're uncomfortable. We don't, we don't like to talk about sadness and death. It's hard to know what to do with it. Let me encourage you to stay here for a minute. When we open the book of Ruth, we should be floored by the intense pain that Naomi has experienced over the last 10 years. Her pain and suffering has been prolonged and seemingly without respite. Imagine losing your family through death or estrangement, your job and any potential of a future career, your retirement accounts, social security, health insurance, all forms of meaningful community, your spouse, your children, all while you live in a foreign land with foreign customs and foreign gods. Let this break your heart the way it breaks God's heart. We should feel at least a sliver of the hopelessness that Naomi is feeling at the end of verse 5 if we are to understand the rest of the story and the larger story of how God loves and cares for his people. Perhaps you don't need to imagine these things as you're experiencing them today. There is so much to learn from Ruth and Naomi and how they deal with their pain. Let me encourage you to study their character, their triumphs, and their failures, and encourage you to place your trust in God anew every day as they do. So with the last 10 years in perspective, the author now starts to move the story forward. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to, return, to the, return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. After years of misery, pain, and loss, verse 6 shows us the first soft glow of hope. And it comes with the first reference in the book to the God himself. He has visited his people, and he is providing for them. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. It's as if Naomi begins the journey only to realize early on that there's no future for her daughters-in-law in Bethlehem. They're widow widowed foreigners journeying to a land with foreign customs, laws, and even different gods. 
Once in Bethel in the Abyss, they go forest to eke out a life on the margins, only a few weeks away from destitution. She frees them of any obligation to her. They've done their part. They've served her. They've cared for her. She frees them of all of this and now hopes that they would be able to marry someone else. Remember, they were married to her sons. Now she's saying, no, go, be free, enjoy, enjoy life, and marry someone else. But they protest. So Naomi begins to work out the math, showing them just how hopeless a life with her really is. Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Perhaps you've heard of Leverett marriage before, maybe in the context of Ruth itself. This is what Naomi's referring to when she's talking about her daughters-in-law marrying future sons of hers. It was a way that, uh, in, in Israel, that you could have provision for widows and carry on the, the family name. But Naomi is arguing in no uncertain terms that it's effectively impossible, that she has no sons, is old, she's not even married, and even if she was to have a son, it would be a long time before they were ready for them, and it would be too long for them to wait. The best thing for her daughters would be to hope to remarry from their father's home. Part of Naomi's logic, even if unstated, might be related to a perceived lack of not just a husband and sons, but God himself. In verse 13, she states that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. With the rest of the story in view and the benefit of hindsight, we know that this isn't true, but for Naomi, the logical progression in the moment is unavoidable. If God is against her, then she truly is at rock bottom, and there's nothing for her to offer her daughters and all other than further misery. Ultimately, Orpah is convinced, but Ruth is not shaken. She clings to Naomi, and one last effort, uh, she says, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi actually encourages Ruth to turn, return to her family that she might dwell with her people and worship the gods of Moab. This might seem a little surprising if Naomi is supposed to be this faithful woman, but I truly believe that Naomi is doing what she thinks is best for Ruth. If God is against Naomi, Ruth is better off far, far away. It's also helpful for us to recognize how much religion the gods one worshipped was tied up with family and with culture. Ruth's response here, her first of only a few words in the book, is a stunning expression of persistent and selfless love. Where Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. Ruth makes it clear that she understands the harsh realities that will come following with Naomi, but she binds herself to her all the same. Not only will she follow Naomi, but she will adopt Naomi's people, and even after her death, she will remain and be buried where Naomi is buried. What a commitment. This is also a remarkable example of conversion in the Old Testament, as Ruth proclaims that God, Yahweh, is her God from now to the end of her life. And her conversion here is not based on proclaiming true statements or saying the right thing. It's grounded in action that required active faith. Contrast her experiences with the patriarchs, and you start to get an idea of just how amazing Ruth really is. They were promised 
amazing things. Abraham would have an infinite number of descendants, and Isaac would be wealthy, and, and they would all be cared for, and God would take care of them and guide them and protect them. Here, Ruth is signing herself up for what looks like a horrible road show. I mean, she is, Naomi is saying that God is against her, and Ruth is saying, no, that's, that's who I am. That's, that's who I'm sticking with. It's possible that Ruth learned a lot about God from her husband before he died, but again, this, this context of what she's experiencing right now, what Naomi is telling her about what to expect, just makes it all the more, I think, impressive that Ruth is committing her life in this way. A lot of people are familiar with Ruth's profession of faith and love and commitment to Naomi, even if they've never read the book, because it's been common at weddings, especially historically. But we should remember, as others have pointed out, she's not talking to a husband or to a lover. She's talking to her mother-in-law. Has anyone ever said that to their mother or father-in-law? I, I don't know anyone who ever talks that way, especially in the context of a wedding or things like that. I mean, it's you, when you think of, oh, what a really great example of strong, committed love, you don't think mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Like, that's just not what we think of, and yet that's what we see here. That's how impressive Ruth's commitment really is. Continuing with verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is also interesting. We just had our first dialogue of the book where Naomi does most of the talking, but now she is silenced by Ruth's oath. The author doesn't clarify, but it almost seems like Naomi continued in silence until they reached Bethlehem. She probably has a lot in her mind as she returns to places she last saw with her husbands and sons. The pain of losing them brought fresh to her mind again. But I wonder if it's not also partly due to a sense of embarrassment or shame on the part of Naomi. Not only did her family abandon the promised land, a land cursed by God, leaving their family and friends behind, but her sons married Moabite women, women known for unpleasant things and for leading Israel astray. And, and she returns to Bethlehem with no sons and a Moabite daughter-in-law in tow. She might be thinking how she's going to explain this to old friends and family. Perhaps Naomi thought that things would have been easier without Ruth in the way to complicate things. Or maybe she thought Ruth would just run away when things got tough. Either way, there wasn't a lot to talk about. There was just see what happens, right? So verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Think about this for a minute. They returned together, worn out from the road, but in Bethlehem at last. The town is abuzz with excitement. The Hebrew word for stirred has the connotation of a noisy commotion, often used in the context of battle. Has Naomi returned? What happened to her husband and sons? And who is with her? They ask, is this Naomi? As if they almost don't recognize her and are uncertain about asking her directly, but Naomi hears and is happy to unload. She is so worn from all the loss and sadness that she no longer wants to be called Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet, but rather Mara, which means bitter. In a culture where names have significant meaning, she defines herself as bitter because the Lord has brought her back empty. Feel the sharpness of her language. She has nothing, she is empty, and the Lord has stripped all pleasantness from her, even her name, her former identity. And as she tells her listeners all of this, Ruth stands probably just a few paces away, doing her best to keep her head up. After all she has done to love Naomi in word and deed, the reality of Naomi's earlier warning starts to hit hard. Naomi calls herself empty, implying, even if unintentionally, that Ruth is less than emptiness itself. 
Ruth has nowhere to go, no one to care for, and no prospect of a happy life ahead of her. And on top of all of that, the person she has committed herself to doesn't even see her. I don't want to depress you, but I want you to feel the weight of the hardship that clouds Naomi and Ruth's lives. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Here the author goes out of his way to remind you that Ruth doesn't belong. She's a Moabite from the country of Moab, as if we could have forgotten. Perhaps you've heard others talk about how Ruth is such an amazing example of a godly woman, how she is one of the prime biblical examples of love that goes above and beyond all expectations and looks to Christ. Don't take their word for it, and don't take mine. Examine her conduct yourself. Naomi says that she went away full but returned empty. What reasonable Jewish woman would want anything to do with a Moabite widow with an outlook almost as bleak as her own? How can Ruth do anything other than get in the way? And yet Ruth cares for Naomi. She continues to walk faithfully alongside of her, forsaking everything she's ever known in exchange for the very God that Naomi says has dealt so bitterly with her. God is faithful. We know this as we read the scriptures and as we look back in earlier seasons of life. Being gathered together this morning is an amazing example of God's faithfulness here in our own lives as Christ builds his church here in Manassas. But in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of a season of loss, it can be difficult to see his faithfulness and we're prone to question what we used to take for granted. Kids, just a few weeks ago, we talked about the Apostle Thomas and how he doubted that Christ had really been risen from the dead. Does anyone remember that? Aiden? You remember doubting Thomas, as some, some people call him? Do, do any other kids remember that? Yeah, there we got a hand over there. There we go, all right. Thomas is known as doubting Thomas, which is a little unfortunate for him. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I think it's important to, to recognize, instead of forsaking godly community, Thomas continued to meet with the other disciples, with the other apostles, and, and eventually Christ confronts him. Doubting isn't a problem in and of itself, but what we do with our doubt is important, and least we be discouraged by the example of Apostle Thomas. Jesus says in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, effectively all of us today. Naomi in, indeed turns back to Bethlehem, demonstrating a continual faith in God despite all that has happened to her. But she doesn't put on a smile and pretend everything is okay. When she returns to the gates of Bethlehem, she tells everyone that she blames God for the calamity in her life. She has a strong understanding of God's sovereignty and is honest with where she is at, even if she isn't willing to take her complaints directly to God. She would have ra been raised on the stories of the first five books of the Bible. She would know how God has led Abraham out of his father's land, how Joseph was sent ahead of his family to Egypt to prepare for a great famine. She would have known of her ancestors' exodus from Egypt and God's provision in the wilderness in the form of the leadership of Moses and Joshua and the manna and the quail. And as she looks at her life, she must be thinking, why is this happening to me? I wonder how many times she asked that question in those 10 years of loneliness, isolation, and sadness. Paul Miller, a Christian author, says, her faith in God drives her frustration with God because she believes that he is both good and powerful. She is in agony. Over the last decade, these thoughts must have just been coming time and time again to her with seemingly no end. If you're going through a hard season of loss, loss of family, loss of job, loss of love, I want to encourage you by reminding you that God is faithful. 
Joshua reminds the people of Israel that not one word has failed of God's promises. And we know that as God promises in Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't mean that we're going to understand what is happening, and it certainly doesn't mean that life will be easy and satisfying. In fact, after an honest reading of the Bible, you should walk away expecting hardship and suffering on behalf of the gospel. But it does mean that God is at work in the lives of believers, drawing us further and further into relationship with him. Like Naomi, don't give up. Turn to God anew each day and pursue fellowship with those who can help point you towards him just as Naomi returns to Bethlehem. Perhaps you aren't going through anything like what Naomi is going through, and I'd say praise God for that. But remember what Paul says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When we encounter someone like Naomi in our own life, we might be tempted to try and explain the hardship away, or maybe we just want to avoid the topic altogether. We don't like to be sad, and we struggle with the realities of death. What does it look like to love someone who's dealing with immense pain? On this point, the example of Ruth is extraordinary especially when juxtaposed with modern advice. How does Ruth respond? Ruth responds by listening. She exemplifies Paul's exhortation to weep with those who weep. She doesn't stop there. Remember, Ruth's husband died as well, not just Naomi's sons. And by committing herself to Naomi for the rest of her life, she's giving up her only hope of the one thing their culture valued for women, bearing and raising a family, also that Naomi would continue to have a family of her own. Instead of throwing a pity party for herself, Ruth trades her life for Naomi's, Jesus says in John 15, 14, greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sometimes loving those around us that are going through prolonged seasons of hardship can be exhausting. Today you might hear someone advise Ruth to take a step back and establish some personal boundaries. Naomi's always depressed. Don't let her negativity get you down. Don't be consumed by a toxic relationship. And you need to grieve and care for yourself before you can care for her. There's some wisdom in this, but it all misses the beauty of the gospel. In discussing Ruth chapter 1, Paul Miller says, when we care for a hurting person or live with a difficult spouse, that person often doesn't have a lot of love to give us. Important but peripheral truths like communication skills and the need to confront just don't cut it. They lack the power to sustain us in the hidden work of love. Only the core passions of Christianity, love and faith, can sustain us in the hidden work of love. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ruth, whose name means friend or compassionate friend, pledges her life to Naomi for the rest of her life, and in doing so, turns her life into a living sacrifice. As a foreigner and widow, Ruth gives up her one hope for a family of, what her, of her own that may, Naomi might have one. In the eyes of the culture around her, her sacrifice leaves her without any value or future. Perhaps you've noticed that we didn't actually finish chapter one yet. Chapter one ends with, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The author writes this last line in a way that would have sounded ironic to his original listeners, as if this was all by chance, when of course the implication is that God was directly responsible for this timing. As we continue with the story of Ruth in the coming months, we'll begin to see not only God's faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi, but to the very people of Israel through them. This is the central focus of Ruth. In a time of societal unrest and moral failure, the book of Ruth showcases God's faithfulness and provision as he works to establish a godly monarchy in the reign of King David several generations later. The story of Ruth is a microcosm, a foretaste of how God is working in all the earth to establish the unending reign of his son, Jesus. 
Ruth's, Ruth's life, a living sacrifice, points us towards Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Perfect because through his death and resurrection once, we have the possibility of eternal life with God. And not just us, but all people. Ruth herself, as a Moabite woman, testifies to God's adoption of peoples from all nations and cultures. In the story of Ruth, we also have a wonderful illustration of God's provision through bread. Naomi and Elimelech leave in pursuit of bread, and Naomi and, return, Naomi and Ruth return in search of bread. As we'll see in the remaining chapters, not only does God meet their need for the present, but he meets their need for the rest of their lives, and in doing so provides for the future of Israel and ultimately the world. As Jesus declares in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Communion, which we'll have here in a few minutes, is a physical reminder of Christ's sacrifice and provision for those who believe. He has become our sustenance for now to the end of eternity. We shall never hunger and thirst again because he has met our every need by restoring us to right relationship with God. Communion is also a time for us to proclaim to those around us the faithful grace and compassion of our God. One day he will return to draw us to him in eternity, and by eating the bread and drinking the wine, we remind each other and proclaim to all the world the glory of God and our future hope. As such, if you don't proclaim to follow Jesus, we would encourage you to remain in your seat. This isn't because we want to bar or restrict anyone from the communion table, but rather we want you to consider your relationship with God this morning. Don't pursue a life that leaves you hungry and empty. Instead, pursue a life transformed by Christ's death on the cross with the knowledge that Jesus desires to feed you for eternity if you would only receive him as you are today. In a moment, you can form two, uh, two lanes down the center aisle, take the cup and the bread, and take them to your seat where you can consume them when you are ready. With that, I'll read from Luke's account in 20, chapter 22, 17 through verse 20. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Come forward as you're ready. 